Hello, this is Ilan Mazur. And Afroni Schlesinger. And today, we are going to take the next level in our journey to understanding the ideas behind the details of our Jewish lives. To understand underlying themes and the values that we can extract from the Torah. However, I think before we can get into any of the more specific ideas and values and really begin our journey, there's a more fundamental question that we have to ask. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions around this question. What is Torah? Meaning we say all the time that these are Torah values, or this is a Torah idea, or we learn it from the Torah. What is the Torah? Meaning we can approach it from a lot of different perspectives of how much of our written literature, our traditions are part of Torah, but even just what would make something Torah or not, we need to define what is Torah. And today, to join us for our conversation, we have a student of both of ours, Joe Block, who's a fourth-year student in Yeshiva Rakotel, to join us and to pick our brains to try and figure out what Torah is. I'll do my best. So, I, I like to start this discussion from, I don't know, maybe an, an unconventional point, but I think that we need to differentiate between two types of answers to that question in order to better get a sense for what we are actually talking about. So I think when people think of what is Torah, as, as you mentioned, people are thinking about the, the book. You know, there, there's a book. There's a book that we call Torah called a Sefer HaTorah. And then those who are, you know, perhaps more educated, more aware, more familiar understand, well, no, there's not just a book. There's also an oral tradition that comes along with it. And, and that, maybe the two of them together would be Torah. And then you can take a step beyond and say, well, there are conclusions that are drawn and assessments that are made that even if it wasn't directly told to Moshe or, you know, to write down or transmitted orally, then, then we have to expand our definition of Torah to fit in, to fit all of those things in. And I don't think that we're talking about any of those things. And that's an important distinction to make. I think that we are talking about the underlying idea or criteria by which something would be uh, included in some of those things. So I'll just give... What meaning, I think meaning you're not, we're not looking for the form that Torah takes, either in an oral tradition, or in a written book, or in a prophecy, or in a conversation, or in a sefer, whatever it is. We're not looking for which books, or which conversations, or which traditions are Torah, but rather what is the concept in which Torah embodies. It just it reminds me of an interesting Yushalmi. Uh, in Shkalim, that uh, Rish Lakish says that the Torah was given uh, a black fire on a white fire. And we kind of even, in, in other words, it's the letters, the black letters, on the page, the blank page. And both of those elements, both the articulation of Torah in written form, as well as the ideas, as well as the page in which it's written on, are the two sides to Torah. There's even halakhic implications to that. Like on, on it, the, the cloth, the actual parchment, even though it doesn't have any letters, has holiness to it. And, bec- and the reason why is because even the blank page, the underlying kind of, uh, I would say, con- conception or embo- that the letters are written on top of also is Torah. And so we're talking about that kind of, uh, that abstract concept as opposed to the forms. Right? right, amazing. And I actually always bring in, whenever I discuss this topic with, with students, is I always bring in those two sources. I bring in the Pasuk and Tvarim, where we have an explicit mentioning of Sefer HaTorah as referring to a physical thing, and then this Gemara Yerushalmi, which Reish Lakish seems to be discussing Torah as kind of an abstract idea. And I want to, but I, I, but I want to make a comment about the relationship between those two things, because you mentioned the words concept and, and form. And I think that with, with everything, with everything that we have, everything in life,
life, everything in the world, we have a concept and we have a form, right? So let's take, for example, our microphone is resting here on this table. Now, the physical components, the physical elements of this table are going to be, you know, wood. Maybe I see some metal in here. There's some, you know, there's a glass on top. That constitutes the physical elements of the table. And you can, you can feel it and you can test it and you can judge the fact that this is wood. Okay, but there is no way to judge the fact that it is a table, right? The table is a conceptual component of what's in front of us, not a physical aspect of what is in front of us. It's a conceptual aspect of what's, of what's in front of us. And even though the wood predated the table, and the steel predated the table, and the glass predated the table, the table was the concept that we had in mind originally when we put all of these elements together. It, it's what told us what to put where, how, how smooth it needed to be, how tall it needed to be. So the, 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 the concept of the table was basically our guiding principle to determine exactly what we wanted these physical components to look like and how to be oriented. That's what I think the distinction is between the discussion of the physical texts of Torah, the words of Torah, as opposed to that, that initial concept that, that defined, that instigated how all of Torah was going to be formed and in what way. I think when you're talking about concepts, though, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to even start a conversation. Right? How do, we're talking about the concepts before the articulation, and then we want to articulate that. Well, that seems like an impossible task. But I think, when you're, I think one way that we can begin the process in conceptualizing abstract ideas or the ideas behind the forms in which they take, we can begin with function. And just as you said, I don't know that this table is a table based upon the fact that it's wood or the fact that there's a glass top or the fact that it has steel you know, bearings that hold it together. But I can figure out that it's a table, or I can define it as a table based upon the function. The function is that we place our laptops and our microphone, and, and we're sitting you know, close to it, and we use it to hold the things that are you know, arm's length. So that's the function of the table, and we have a concept. What does that mean? We have a goal that we're trying to accomplish via this, these materials, and the what 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 defines whether or not it is a table is whether or not it achieves the goal that or the function in which we're trying to achieve. So maybe we could approach this process by looking at what is the function of Torah? What is Torah supposed to accomplish? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, yeah, I, I, was, I was thinking about going in more of a, of a, you know, I was thinking of, of taking it in a little bit of a different direction. So why don't you start with defining the Torah based on the function, and then maybe we'll work back around and I'll, and I'll go from a, maybe approach it from a different angle. So I, I think that there's, there's a lot of conversations around function. We can even, let's list out possibilities as opposed to choosing one at this point. But I think that there's, there's verses and psukim throughout the Torah that give us the sense that the goal of the Torah is for you to live a better life. As it says that um, that I'm, I've given witness to the world, and you have to choose between a life of of klala, a life of, of curse, or even mavet. The pasuk sometimes calls a life that is void of Torah, or uh, or or to choose or to choose life, life over death in a certain sense. And so we're trying to be, to live the fullest life. And I'm sure that in summer camps, I know I've heard this many, many times, that it's explained to me that Torah is as if you bought like a new computer or a new, you know, game console, and it comes with a manual. And if you want, meaning people can, you know, figure it out, and sometimes they'll figure out all its functions and sometimes not, or you can read the manual. And if you read the manual, you'll actually know how to use this in the best possible way. So to Torah, God gave you a life, and he also gave you on top of that kind of a list of functions that you can best utilize the life by following those things. And I think that that interpretation, in a certain sense, constricts Torah to an individual's 
um, on it to an individual basis, where it's about my life, what I do, how I best reach my potential. It's it's probably, you could call it, the greatest self-help book ever written by the creator, not just by somebody who knows you, but the creator of the device, meaning your life, the one who gave you your life, it's also giving you the instructions how to best live it. How would you... Do you think that that would be a correct definition of what the Torah would be? So again, like you said, it was, it's, it's relatively limited and restricted. And my approach in general would be to, instead of start with trying to define its function based on what the Pesukim uh, say, is just trying to understand the Torah as a concept and how it came into being. Meaning, not, I have this Torah, what do I do with it? But more, what was the impetus behind creating such a thing called Torah? And then, from understanding the necessity for Torah, I can understand what the Torah is meant to be used for on a practical level. Not going from function back to Torah, but going from necessity for Torah and out into function. So more similarly, so we should start before creation, like, right. the, like the Midrash or the Zohar that says that 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 God, in order to create the world, looked into the Torah, seemingly kind of like the blueprints that a construction worker or an architect would use in order to build a structure, the world being our structure, and God needed to look into the Torah in order to understand or in order to build the world from it, which is a, it's a mind, once you see that the first time, it's a mind-boggling concept. Because generally we view the Torah as a way, something that was written after the fact. Meaning, we have the world, we have our lives, here's a guidebook to best function. As opposed to the prerequisite to all of reality that predates, and not just predates, but is the, not just... It's also in a global sense that Torah is the beginnings of or the blueprints of all of reality. I think that's a very different way of seeing Torah than what we what we said before. Right, and and interestingly so is that all the almost all the midrashim, almost all the gemaras that I, that I know of that give you a good sense of what Torah is uh, on a fundamental level are all talking about Torah as something that predated the, the creation of the world. What do you mean, for example? So, there's the Gemara in Tzachim that talks about the, the several things that predated the world. The shame of the Melech HaMashiach, the Torah, uh, Tshuva, all these things are all talked about in the context of before the world was created. The, the Midrash that, that, that you mentioned, the first Rashi uh, on, on Bereshi, uh, or sorry, the second Rashi on Bereshi that says, Bishvil Torah bara Ola. But the whole world was created for the Torah. All these sources are speaking about the Torah as something that existed before the world, right? In, 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 what do you think that means that it existed before the world? Meaning, it's, it's a very strange phrasing if you think about it theologically. Meaning, the world doesn't just include space but also time. So just thinking about before time is like such a paradox right. that you can't even begin to conceptualize it. So how, what does that mean that the Torah, something was before, that the, that the Torah was before the world or Tshuva was before the world or any of the other examples that you gave? So, so to do that, I think what we need to do is start discussing these concepts as, start discussing these concepts as as how necessary they are in what they are facilitating. That sounded a little bit abstract, but let's go back a step. Let's, let's, let's go back as far as you could possibly go back and start with, with God. Let's start with God being a perfect God, right? God is a perfect God. Now, as a product of his perfection, there are certain things, let's say, that he wants. There are certain things that are, let's call them Ratzon Hashem, desires, wants of God. Unlike most desires that we think of, most desires are because you lack something, right? I want because I don't have. 
So with God, it works differently. God wants because he has. Right. So what does that mean? Right, that's, and that's, by the way, what the, in, in Sefer Kuzari, when he brings up the philosopher, one of the biggest attacks the philosopher has on religion or a conception of God as being a God that has a will or has expectations for people is the fact that, by definition, wanting something is, is because you don't have it. Otherwise, why would you want it? Right. So, so there are a couple of different uh, ways to answer that question. Let's take, for example, the way that the Ramchal answers that question. <clears throat> and he says this in Derech Hashem very, very clearly, is a perfect God who would be the pinnacle of goodness would want to do good to others. Now, that is not a product of the deficiency of God, but rather a product of God's goodness being the highest level that goodness can be. Meaning, without the desire to translate that goodness, imparting goodness in others, that would be a deficiency. It is the fact that he's the pinnacle of goodness that generates the want to do goodness, and the lack of wanting to do goodness is the deficiency. So, meaning, I think what you're saying is that there are certain things that wanting does not demonstrate a lack thereof, but rather an embodiment of that and wanting to give it. For example, nobody talks about love for your children and wanting to show your children love as stemming from some kind of deficiency that you have. Meaning, I guess there might be a type of love that might stem from a deficiency, but in its purest form, love is something that you give without a deficiency. It's because it's something that you that fully embodies your being and you want to share it with others. And so your example of goodness is, I think, maybe even a, a, a wider, uh, a water use of love or chesed as others would bring that the world is created chesed olam chesed that the world is created via chesed which is giving of kindness goodness love okay so now we understand there are sorts of things that that when you're saying so let's go back to our original question we're trying to predate the world with certain concepts how what does that mean uh, in, in, in once we understand that God has certain will and what's on to give goodness to others. Okay, so we have we have God wanting God wanting the world for some purpose. You can call that goodness. A couple different approaches, but God wants something. God wants something. The accomplishment of that goal of God is unbelievably complex dynamic, multifaceted. So the and simple, right? <laughs> and, and, and in a sense, uh, but, but there are so many necessary components in order to accomplish or in order to facilitate that goal that God now wants, right? And in which case, in which case, the moment you have a perfect God with a will to do, then you have a billion and one interacting components for the accomplishment of that will of God. The Torah is basically the outline of how every component, every sufficient component for the accomplishment of that goal must work together and in the right way to accomplish said goal. So you start with God and, and, and then God's will. And the very first, or I'll say one of the two first byproducts of the will of the perfect God is how everything necessary must function in order to accomplish that will of God. The second byproduct of that will of God is the executive branch, basically, of that will. So the moment you have a perfect God with a will, you have a, 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 theoretical, uh, a, a theoretical outline of how a billion different things need to function together in order to accomplish that goal, but that also necessitates, necessitates an entity that is going to 
uh, put all of those things together in the right way. Now that is Torah, and that is Yisrael, and those are basically the two foremost concepts, the two foremost byproducts of the will of God. That's why the Klal Yisrael, why Klal Yisrael is called the Bechor, the firstborn of God. It's why Klal Yisrael is called the thing that predated the world. It's why Rashi in the first Midrash, as, as Rav Kook explains in Midbar Shor, that, that the whole world was created for Torah and Israel, because these are the two first outgrowths of the will of God in order for its accomplishment. So I think, I think we have to take a few steps back, because Meaning, the concept that you brought up is extraordinarily abstract, and to see how Torah and Israel are the embodiments in this world of that concept, because if it's, meaning, I think there's a few steps that we have to go through in order to get there, first and foremost, because we, we generally think of Torah as a book and Israel as a nation. So, how do we get from this, like, really deep, fundamental, extraordinarily abstract concept to a nation and a book. Okay, so I think maybe we could, uh, there, there's a um, there's a fascinating uh, kind of, it's, it's a little bit of a, of a textual insight, but I thought it was a great, great point that was made by Rav Hirsch. Just on the name Elohim. Okay, and, and, and if you think about it, the word Elohim is a very strange name for God, because as much as we talk about the oneness of God, like Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, we also speak about Elohim as in plural, which is kind of contradicts. There's actually once uh, on, uh, on, the, on the streets of Tel Aviv, and uh, we were doing the Kiru project, and somebody came over to me with a pamphlet that wanted to convince me that, uh, or to join his group that believed that the Elohim were a group of aliens that came to the world and gave advanced technologies to man. And the proof that he had for this was the fact that Elohim is plural, there must be lots of them, and the leader was Yudke Vavke. Okay, so maybe that was an extreme uh, kind of misconception or perversion of the name, but why is Elohim plural? So if Hirsch uh, explains that if you think about it, plurality, when you turn a word from singular to plural, it actually unites the parts as opposed to, it doesn't make more parts, it unites the parts. For example, if I have in a room a chair and 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 a chair, if they're all separate chairs, then I have to say each one. But I can also say, hey, can you get me the chairs? And by making chair plural, I've just united them as one category. Okay, so plural in language takes parts and unites them as one category. Now, what is the uniting factor behind all of the all of the pieces in all of reality? What 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 what, what word you would use for that? So, meaning the generic word for a singular thing is this, or in Hebrew, zeh. The plural of this is these, or in Hebrew would be ele. Now, what's the plural of these? Now, that's a weird word. Well, in Hebrew, to make ele plural, add a yud and mem, an im at the end, and you get Elohim. So, really, the name of God is the culmination or the thread that pulls together all of reality and makes it mean something. There's so much complexity in the world, as you said, with the billion, obviously it's more than billions, but the extreme complexity that exists in reality is all tied together by the oneness of God, and that oneness is, is, is in a certain sense, expressed by the name that we give God as Elohim, the thesises, the 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 concept of all of reality of all the these in the world in the world being coming together as one and there's a there's another beautiful maharal in um, in on Perkei Avot what is a there's a piece in Perkei Avot people know that says God created the world in ten statements so, so the maharal why did God need to create the world in ten statements what what's 
What's the, why not just create in one statement? God's all-powerful. Why ten? And so the Maharal explains that the number ten, as in general the Maharal believes that numbers have, have, uh, have symbolic meaning to them, where the number ten symbolizes the unity of the parts. Right? It's the first number that is, in the, in, that is plural, meaning it's not one, but it's also, it's, it goes back to the digit of one to define it as, as together. So it's the number that represents plurality and complexity with an underlying unity. Complexity with unity is Elohim, is, is creation. So, so correct me if I'm wrong, what you're saying is that Torah, in its abstract concept, is meant to be that unifying is, is meant to be the meaning behind the complexity of the world. So, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily argue on that point, but I don't know that that was the primary point that I wanted to get across, right? So you, you started off by saying that, you know, that we need to rewind you know, three steps because how is it that this Jewish people, when we think about the Jewish people... Let's start and, with Torah. And, 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 like, how is it these, and how is it that this book, you know, is that thing? But, I, I, you know, I, Davka, wanted to start from as far back as, as it would go. So let's, let's, for a second, put our understanding on the physical Torah as we know it, both on the book, on the tradition, the physical thing as we know it, and the physical nation, again, which we don't have to talk about at all today, they'll just put it totally on the side and just erase for a second a couple preconceived notions about what we're talking about when we say Torah. All I know is, and you can call it whatever you want, you can call it whatever you want, but all I know is when there is a perfect God, and that perfect God has a ratzon, as a product of his perfection, there needs to be a, 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 a complex system whereby that uh, goal can be accomplished, and there needs to be an executive branch of that goal. Right? That would be the byproduct of that goal. The, we need complexity, and we need unity of that complexity. We need that complexity to be to tied together somehow. Both are necessary. Complexity is necessary, and the tying together is, is necessary. Sure. Okay. Now that we have that, right, as concepts, ideas, that predate everything because they're, a, they're, they're the initial byproduct of a God with a will, anything that would then be created in pursuit of, of that will would have come after, by definition, after the existence of those two concepts in theory. Okay. Was that clear? Yeah, it's clear enough. But if I may ask, there's a famous Zohar that says, uh, it says, So how is it that there's, there's something that, that God is creating this, this, this separate will, let's say, um, which we're, I guess we'll nominally call Torah for now, and that there's Hashem. Like what, how do they function in, like, he looked in the Torah to create the world. How is it that, it, that it's him and the Torah are one? So, okay, so there, so there are two... Parts, I mean, there are two different things that you're saying. One is assuming that uh, Baruch Hu, that, that, that God has some sort of unity with Torah. And the other one is to say that the Torah was uh, some sort of schematic or blueprint upon which the world was created. And, and I think that, meaning these two ideas are the two ideas upon which everything I said were really uh, based in that the, the outline for the accomplishment of God's will is not so much a creation in and of itself, right? It is the means by which that pre-existing will must be accomplished. The world afterward is a creation that serves as a platform for the accomplishment of that will, that was a byproduct of God and not necessarily a creation of God. And then that platform must have been constructed in direct accordance with what needed to exist in that platform in order for that will to have been executed properly. I think that, meaning I would disagree with the use of the words byproduct of God. And I would just, I think we can simplify this. And it might be whenever you simplify, you lose a little bit of nuance. But just for the sake of conversation, 
I think we can simplify all of this and say, let's redefine the word Torah as Ratzon Hashem, the will of God. Torah is the will of God. And that will, what does we mean when we say that God and his Torah are one? It's just like we say God and his will is one. And what does it mean that God looked into the Torah in order to create the world? He looked into his will, per se, and created the world. And I think that that, that means that we're defining the Torah as the reason in which God created the world. It's the purpose behind creation. It's the why behind the what. And so Torah has grown in this conversation to something way beyond an individual's you know, guidebook or a bunch of rules that we have to follow, and rather it is the, ma- the manifestation of God's why behind all of reality. It's interesting, the Maharami Prague discusses this at length in many, many places. This is kind of one of the most fundamental Maharalian concepts or constructs. When you say Maharalian, then you get to say construct. So, so what the, and we found, find this in, in a book called Nitiva Torah, we find this in Deferet Yisrael, and in many other places sprinkled around. He calls the Torah Seder Ha'olam, or the order of the world. That's a strange, like, what does that mean, the order of the world? Well, order is a construct that gives meaning behind all the pieces. Meaning, in, everyone has what they call a man drawer, right? A man drawer is where you just throw everything that you don't know what you need. But my wife has a baking drawer where she has all the things that are needed for baking. Now, the difference between a man drawer and my wife's baking drawer is that one has order and one's chaos. One, everything in there has a specific purpose, and one does not. And so when we say that Torah is the order of the world, we are essentially saying that Torah is what gives the world its purpose. It is, that's what we mean also what it predates. It predates the world, and that's what it means that it's its purpose, because obviously a purpose predates the actual thing itself. If I may jump in, but okay, that makes sense if we're talking about this, this grand Ratzon Hashem, will of God. But is that the Torah that we have? When I want to go learn Torah, what am I learning? I, I can open up a Torah and I open up the Sefer Bereshit. It's, it's, it's a history book. I mean, maybe there's a few mitzvot scattered here and there. And then throughout the rest of the, the five books of Moses, there's other commandments that we get. And then we have the, the, the story of Tanakh. What, okay, is that, what is the relevance to the will of God? And all of Torah Shema Alpeh, throughout the, the mission of the Gemara, throughout the centuries, is that the will of God? we're describing here in the, the grandest fashion which God looked into to create the world. How, how is like, this and that the same thing? It seems like we're talking about apples and oranges here. Right. And, and, I, and I think that it's just to push your point a little bit further, there are many sources in the Talmud and in Midrashim and as we brought in the text itself that define Torah in a much more simplistic manner than this extraordinarily abstract concept that we've brought forth today. Meaning, just for example, there's the Gemara Masechi Kedushin that many, I think it's quoted very often, and even, even not necessarily sourced, but at least the idea is quoted very often, that Torah created, uh, that God created the Yitzhahara, the evil inclination, and created the, um, the, the Torah as a sam, a sam, samachayim, as kind of a, an antidote for the uh, for the Yitzhar. So it's like the Torah is there in order to make sure that you don't mess up and you don't fall to your inclinations, which really gives us the impressions that it's meant for the individual. And it's true, the vast majority of our Torah learning is in the details and not beyond those details. So everyone take a shot. <laughs> so I, I think that the question we're dealing with right now is basically bridging the gap between the Torah that we have, that we started out by saying that is not the Torah we're <laughs> talking about, and the Torah as a concept that we just spent the last you know, 30 minutes discussing. And, and I think that, that Joe's pushback on us, it's, I think that the misconception is not that the Torah is a guidebook to life. That's not the misconception. I think the misconception is that Torah is only a guidebook to life. But it has to work on all levels. 
Torah needs to work on a global level as well as on an individual level. And even that ma'aral that I brought up before says explicitly that everything I'm saying is kind of what he calls the white fire, the ideas behind it. But the articulation of the Torah and the revealed part of the Torah, or, or meaning what we have in our book, that's the way that you are able to fulfill your part within this grand purpose of God's creation. Right, so, so that, so the, I'll follow up comment on that, so the Maharal in that first paragraph of Nativa Torah, when he is discussing the, 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 the Torah as the Seder Ha'olam, he says that for human beings, our, our function within that broader will of God is explicit, as in it is written for us to know what we are meant to do within the context of the accomplishment of that goal. But, but everything else, everything else in the universe has an unexplicit goal within that Torah as though it plays some sort of part that, uh, that is a necessary part, perhaps, but, uh, but it's, it's, it's there. The, the human being is given the explicit role within accomplishing that, that mission. So God is saying, well, do this. Because ultimately, when you do this and he does that and they do all of these things, that leads to the goal. But there are also things that get no explicit role within that, which are basically our tools that God gave us that were necessary tools for the accomplishing of uh, that broader goal. So it's, it, it's, there's a, this is not about Torah, but rather Rav Kook wrote a, it's, it's a beautiful idea and it's found in the beginning of Olat Raiyah. Um, about tefillah, and he says the entire world, it's very poetic, the entire world is praying, and the human is the one, and man is the one that brings that prayer or, or, or heightens the volume of that prayer. All of reality is part of this mission together, and through our actions in following the Torah, we have the ability, and, and this means like following Ritzon Hashem in the small way, has the ability to, to connect, start connecting the ripples. All the, the, the complexity starts to connect. And when the complexity starts to connect, it has this ripple effect where everything around us is able to finally fall into place. And so I think what we're, this, it's, it creates a really beautiful idea where Torah at first is kind of the rules that I have to follow in order to live my life or in order to get Olam Haba. And now we've expanded that to the will behind the reason why the world is created. And it also gives you, as an individual, an incredibly powerful role in being the link and start connecting the dots. It's kind of like a little, uh, like a kid's game, connect the dots. There's all these little different things. And our, those, those dots are part of the picture, as you said. But they don't have an explicit role of being connected. It's our role to connect them. And if we don't connect them, they're just dots on a page. But if we do connect them, then they're usually a very strange drawing. But in our <laughs> nimshal, in Wahujah, is a beautiful tapestry that all of humanity is working together to create. So just to take a step back to, to, to Joe's question, I want to bring in a piece that I think really helps bridge the gap, again, between the Torah as a concept and the Torah as a book. Right? So the, the Torah... There is a famous Gemara in the Sechad Nida that speaks about the mitzvot, the commandments of the Torah, being batel la'atid lavo, right? Which is such a dangerous concept, you know, to, to, to get into. And similar concepts have led uh, different, you know, uh, uh, Jewish ideologies astray that, uh, oh, apparently the mitzvahs are these temporary things that uh, will lack relevance in the Torah. But what bothers, well, will lack relevance in the future. What bothers the Maharal, perhaps more so, is one of the fundamental precepts of our ideology, which is that the Torah is eternal. So how is it that on the one hand you have an eternal Torah, and understandably why the world is eternal, since, sorry, the Torah is eternal, since we just discussed it as a product of the will of God, um, where on the other hand, we have all the mitzvot that the Torah is teaching us as things that are going to be batel, la'atid lavo. And so the Maharal explains very much along the lines of what we've been saying so far, but also helps us bridge that gap, which is to say as follows. The Torah, yes, is that will of God. 
Okay? Now, the world that we are in currently, the world that we are in currently, uh, has a specific function, a specific role in pursuit of that will of God. In Latid Lavo, in Yemota Mashiach, in future days, right, the goal will be in a new phase, essentially speaking. Right? There is a role to this world, a purpose that this world must accomplish to get us to the days of the Mashiach. Right? And we must accomplish that goal throughout this world as we know it. But once we have Yemot HaMashiach, we will be in a different, basically a different phase of that goal that God has for the world. Now, if the Torah is the will of God, and it is eternal, then there is no batel, there is no cancellation to it. However, if the mitzvot are the practical manifestations, the guides for human beings right now to accomplish the goal that God has for the world as we know it, then they are, in a sense, timely in that they need to be facilitating the part of the goal we are meant to accomplish right now. Right? But that the part of the goal that needs to be accomplished in Yemot HaMashiach will have a different type of instruction that is a reflection of the exact same goal, just in a different time, with a different focus, and maybe a different nature to the time itself. So the Torah is that eternal will of God. The world is basically our platform for executing it, and the mitzvot are a description of how to execute that rutzon in the world as we know it, but in a world that functions differently, then the same exact will will need to manifest differently in its imperative on individuals. So you, you do realize how dangerous 100%. what you said is. Yes. Meaning, and there's no need for it. I don't think that there's a theological necessity to say that, to explain the Gemara that way, mainly because many Rishonim and Rav Kook do not agree with the Maral stance on that. And then the question, if you do take the Maral stance, then what's the difference between all the, all the sects that, that said, well, we're just manifesting God's will in a different way now that we are in the future? And that's one of the, it, 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 that is possibly one of the underlying uh, rejections of Christianity to the works or the mitzvot that, that we perform, that we are now in another stage and God's will manifest itself in another stage. I think that's, and, and when, and, and the question only becomes when have we reached that stage? So the, the Ritva has a very different reading of that Gemara Masechet uh, Nida. And he says what it means that the mitzvah will be batel, that the the, the commandments will be annulled is not the actions themselves, but rather the nature of them being a commandment. And they will lose their commanding nature, their rule-based nature, but rather they'll become natural to us. Rav Kook continues this and speaks about it in Arota Kodesh and takes that same perspective as the fact that when we'll reach a point where we've put all the pieces together and reality will come, will, the meaning of reality, the purpose of reality will all be perfectly harmonized, then the actions that keep that structure in place will be evident to us and we won't need the commandment. Meaning, according to the Ritva of Cook, what we're doing is in Lati Lavo, the time, obviously we have to speak a lot about what Lati Lavo is, but that step from Olam Azeh, from this world to the future world, is not a step from one manifestation of God's will to another manifestation of God's will, but it's a stepping over from our view of Torah as a book of rules to our view of Torah as being the will of God that connects all the pieces in an evident manner and the meaning behind the world becomes something that is revealed to us in a very apparent way.
Right, so it's certainly, I mean, I don't deny the danger of such a statement and where that statement can uh, uh, bring people to conclude. I don't know that the danger of a statement is the right metric for the measurement of its truth, but it's certainly dangerous nonetheless. But I think that the main point, whether or not you want to, uh, 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 whether you want to, you know, want to analyze the Maharal's perspectives as opposed to Rav Kooks or as opposed to the, the Ritvaz, I think that the perspective, meaning even if you say it doesn't change, Fine. Even if you don't say it doesn't change, but that perspective the Maharal introduces there helps us bridge a critical gap between the fact that what the mitzvot are is, and, and what the Torah is, is basically the book or the tradition or the rules that were designed to translate the will of God to the individual or to the collective in a very real sense in that world because you can't just be exposed to the abstract but will. It's, now, right. But it still is a bridge between two separate hills with a massive gap between them that what is what the Maharal did. I, cor- I, I agree that what the Maharal is trying to accomplish is a bridge, but rather what Rav Cook is trying to explain is that these two concepts, the concept of Torah as a actions that you do versus the Torah as being the will of God that is that connects all of reality, there's no bridge that's needed to connect those two concepts. We just have to realize it. And that realization comes in the future and it's not a it's not separate. The Maharal does take a separation. And I think that that separation is what is the danger itself. Because where that separation lies is obviously something that will be argued about all the time. But a realization can't be argued about. When all of Torah is realized, and we know, and it becomes self-evident that we have to wear tefillin and scissors and Shabbos and, 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 and Chagim, everything becomes evident to us based upon this utopian vision of the Ritva and the Amr of Kuk, when we realize it, nothing will change. Just our... our, our understanding of, or the evidence, or the apparentness of the meaning will be what has changed. Yeah, I, I don't know, I don't know if now is the place to get into the details of arguing the shitas and the different sources that may indicate one way or the other, but there are certain... I disagree, I think this is exactly <laughs> the place to argue about. There are certain mitzvot that we call mitzvot today that have never in Jewish history been seen as, as things that were not self-evident concepts. For example... For example, murder. For example, theft. These were things that the Jewish people, at the time they received the Torah, already treated as self-evident concepts, and yet they were called mitzvot nonetheless. So, whether or not they have or haven't, I think, is debatable. But uh, for another time, fine. <laughs> yeah, so, again, we're t- now, now we've brought down this Ratzon Hashem to the practical mitzvot that we have in the Torah, and that we have, let's say, throughout Tanakh, we have Nebuah. But how, how do we bridge that gap between, let's say, mitzvot de Rabbanan and all the teachings of our, of our other sages throughout the centuries, which we all consider to be Torah, but again, they haven't gotten, they, they have not received any divine prophecy or any direct word of Hashem. And there's also the famous Gemara, which Moshe sees Rabbi Akiva learning out, you know, all these, these details from the Torah that he, he never knew, and Moshe was the one who got the Torah. So how is this, this, this gap between this, this grand will of Hashem, the actions, and then like what we actually do, Lemaisa, in our, in our daily lives. So when it comes to Dirabanans, it's it's I think that that's obviously a conversation in its own right. And we should have that conversation. But just our regular just I'm standing on one leg in the next few moments that we have, um, there's an interesting argument between between the Rambam and the Ramban as to whether or what the source of Dirabanans are. And, uh, and the Rambam famously says that the source that, of the authority of the, of the rabbinate to make rules that we have to follow is the Torah itself. That in, 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 in Sefer Tvarim it says that Lota that we have to follow, we're not allowed to veer away from what they teach us. And that teaches us that whatever the, the rabbinate, now what is considered the rabbinate is obviously a bigger question, but whatever is a legitimate rabbinate is allowed to make rules that we have to follow or are bound to follow them by the Torah. The Ramban says no, the rabbis make their rules and the Torah makes their rules. So throughout the centuries, and there's even full books written on this, this Ramban as, asks, so where does the Ramban get its authority from? 
and the uh, in a in a book written by uh, Rabbi Hanan Wasserman uh, called Kunsuris as Kovetz Dibrei Seifrim. It's found in the back, back of uh, Kovetz Shirim, and he he writes that that the will of God manifests itself into two ways. Both the Torah and the rabbi, and rabbinic laws, their authority does not come from the Torah. The authority of the Torah does not come from the Torah. The authority of the Torah comes from the will of God. And so too, the will of God is that we continuously enact His will and, and create over time and develop His will both through the Torah that was given at Sinai and throughout history through the Derabanans. Now, on a, on a much, I would say, lesser authoritative role, I think that that's kind of what we've been speaking about the whole time. How the will of God, how do we translate that into the individuals? And we say the individuals, we mean individuals as people, our subjective experiences, as well as individual generations throughout time. How does Torah manifest itself? How does God's will manifest itself throughout time and place and into an individual basis? And there's a... Um, in, in a few hundred years ago, there was an argument as to what the words Torah Lishma mean. What is the words learning Torah Lishma, which translates roughly as Torah for its own sake? What does that mean, Torah for its own sake? What's its sake? What does the Torah want? So the general argument is, is, is quoted as being an argument between the, uh, the Hasidim and the Misnabdim, those who were against the Hasidim, even though it stems from an argument within the Rishonim. But the, they, would, they would say that the, the Balatanya or the Baal Shem Tov would say, and the, the Hasidic movement would say that learning Torah for its own sake is for the sake of connecting with God. While the world of the Misnagdim, we find this with the Nefesh HaChaim, or Chaim and Sefer, which was meant to argue with the Hasidic movement, he writes that Torah Lishma means learning Torah for its own sake, for the sake of Torah itself as an end in its own right. Now, if Cook kind of takes this argument and, and, and synthesizes it in a beautiful way in Orota Torah, and he says that what is Torah Lishma? It's for the realization that our goal in this world is to manifest God's will to the best of our ability. And then he continues in further and says, God created each and every one of us differently because we each have a different role and a different piece in the puzzle that we are meant to manifest in the best possible way. And I think that that way of looking at things creates two fundamentally transformative attitudes to the world. Number one is, it creates a, tr a deep sense of responsibility that we have a role that no one else has. I have a role that no one else has in manifesting God's Torah within this world, and no one has ever had it throughout history. And everyone throughout history has that role. And fully, altogether, all the pieces manifest God's will. And I also think that it creates a sense of appreciation for others and respect of others, that just as I have a unique piece of the puzzle, so too they also have a unique piece of the puzzle. And it might not fit even with next to me, but I have to respect that it's part of the bigger picture itself. So just to try to address Joe's point, and, and again, yes, the, the role that the rabbis have to play, you know, the roles that the rabbis play historically uh, probably needs one, if not many, uh, you know, podcasts in and of itself. But just to try to put it in as, as simple terms as possible, we just have to say that the will of God in, in the way that it's meant to be manifest in this world requires a body of individuals in real time who is able to adapt that will to the reality of that time. And I think that that's, it, 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 there's no theorem. I mean, there's no contradiction whatsoever. We need that body who can exist in real time and say, this is a manifestation of the will of God for us for right now, and that is a manifestation for God for us for right now. Great. Okay. Uh, until next time. See you later.